Well, folks, it's Jerry Adams here, and Tasulagomsha Arish, Gobil Shibsha, Gumai, Tamisha, and Wai. If you, if you hear background noise here, my apologies. JJ's working away. Uh, don't quite know what he's doing, but he's there anyway. So I was just reflecting, you know, we we all like celebrations. We all like, you know, birthdays, even in the life of an organization or a group or a family. You know, these are all matters for rejoicing and crack. And mostly speaking, there can be, of course, sadness around some of as well. But, you know, a centenary birthday, now there's, there's something to have a centenary birthday. And, you know, if you're, if you're a, an Irish citizen and you reach the year of 100 years, you get 2,540 Euros check from an Octoron Naharan from the President of Ireland and a, a special message. Now the English the English do it slightly differently. You, you get a, a wee personalized message with a facsimile a signature from uh, Queen Elizabeth and you get it through the normal uh, post system although it does come in a special envelope. So I suppose that's, you know, that's, that's part of human nature. Like some people like big celebrations and some people like quiet celebrations. They, they, they don't want any fuss. They just want to have their friends and their families and just get on with it. And some people don't like celebrations at all, at all, at all. But anyway, last Monday was the birthday, the 100th birthday of Partition. The passing into law on May the 3rd, 1921, of the Government of Ireland Act. Almost passed on noticed. Oh, there was the huge banner on Divis Tower with its very positive message to talk about Irish unity, stating a united Ireland is for everyone. Johnny Wedgey Lahalia, that was that was one point. And then just where I'm looking out here, the Black Mountain had uh, its United Ireland message as well. The mountain spoke loudly and it was a really fair play, God bless the men and women who climbed up the slopes because it was a really torrentially wet, cold, hailstony sort of a day. But apart from that, uh, there wasn't a lot. I mean, the, the unions parties, the British government and some others had tried to, earlier on in the year, to turn this into a, a bigger sort of a celebration. And indeed, uh, the NIO were given the responsibility, not, not the assembly, not, not the executive, but the the, the British Colonial Office, the NIO, were given the responsibility of organising it and some bright spark in there came up with the idea of using Seamus Heaney and Mary Peters' images onto the tagline, Our Story in the Making, NI Beyond 100. 
And it was supposed to be about the spirit of inclusivity and mutual respect and optimism. And it backfired. No one was inclusive enough to ask uh, the Heaney family. And then the NIO claimed that the Seamus Heaney Centre at Queen's had given its permission for the portrait to be used, but that was speedily denied. And many people uh, who may not otherwise spread poetry were quoting Seamus's own words, be advised, my passport's green. No glass of ours was ever raised to toast the Queen. And others challenged the NIO title and the use of our. You know, because for, for those of us who are nationalists or republicans or the other, it's never ours, never been ours. The, this, this state was never a place that gave us uh, a warm welcome. It was a, a place apart and respect for others was never part of its ethos. So, the other thing, of course, that happened was the coup against uh, Arlene Foster. And that that's what filled uh, the political cycle and uh, the media cycle. And this was all on the back of the very strident and belligerent language by the Unionist parties about the impact of Brexit, which they created, and especially about the introduction of the Irish Protocol and the Irish Sea Border. And the DUP tried to wash their hands of any of this, even though it was they who had campaigned for Brexit, secured funding for Brexit, argued every day for Brexit, defended Brexit when the referendum was won, and then fought with Theresa May and Boris Johnson when they thought the British government was not delivering a hard Brexit. The DUP leadership lied about Brexit and the protocol. And they blamed everybody. They blamed, as usual, Sinn Féin, the European Union, the Irish government. And then they come up with a five-point plan. I have to confess, I, I don't recall what the five points are. But that, that encouraged that climate in which quite small numbers of mostly young people from loyalist working-class areas engaged in street riots and confrontations. And there were attempts to ignite sectarian conflict at some interface areas, which failed largely due to the efforts of local community workers from both the Protestant, Unionist and Loyalist neighbourhoods and fair play to them, and the nationalist areas, and from Sinn Féin activists as well. So, despite the very obvious fact that a British government has once again betrayed Unionists, and that Boris Johnson seems incapable of telling the truth. The DUP chose to believe him and he insisted that he didn't like the protocol and would change it. And then came the coup. And there, there have been a consistent element. They used to be called the Twelve Apostles, but going right back to when the DUP were first persuaded to come into government, famously Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley sharing the office of First and Deputy First Minister, there have been a, a, a cohort of uh, those within the DUP who have been against us. So they were there against Peter Robinson, they were there against Arlene Foster.
but it's it's a bit academic now. Arlene Foster is gone. And I couldn't help but feel sorry for her and her family. Uh, I know most of the plotters. To my knowledge, none of them went privately to her to tell her of their intentions. That was left to the media. And I recall to myself when Martin McGuinness, God rest him, was resigning, that he insisted in travelling to Belfast to tell Arlene and company in person. And because he was so well, I tried to persuade him or dissuade him from from doing this. I, I tried to get him to do it by phone. But he insisted that he do them the courtesy of telling them in person. And that's what he did. And according to Arlene, since the coup, she has not spoken to any of those who signed the letter demanding her resignation. So that's politics without loyalty or good manners. A few years ago it was also different in the election of 2017 the DUP won 10 seats entered an alliance to keep Mary Lou Gomelesco <laughs> to keep Theresa May in power and uh, on that day on the day of the results Mrs Foster told her jubilant supporters that those who want to tear apart the union have been sent a clear and a resounding message. And I remember saying, and not for me to say I told you so, but I remember saying that alliances between Ulster Unionism and British Unionism have always ended in tears. A few weeks ago, Mrs Foster abstained in an assembly vote to block so-called gay conversion therapies. And that was the last straw for some of those who are fundamentalists in the DUP for some of those who are creationists and they moved against her and she was forced to step down as the leader of the DUP and to give notice that she's going to step down as First Minister. Now since then speculation has been rife, there's been lots of acres of newsprint and hours of our time used up about who will replace her and what the implications will be for the future of, of, of the Assembly. And of course also this is a contest between Geoffrey Donaldson and Edwin uh, Putz. So I actually haven't spent an awful lot of my limited brain power trying to figure all of that out. We'll know next Friday who's going to be the leader. But what is important is and it's very basic, that the move against Mrs Foster is evidence of the deep resistance to positive change from within the DUP and other elements of political unionism. And for those who might be surprised, for those who were tearing their hair out at the failure of the refusal of Arlene Foster to honour commitments which she made, you know, just bear in mind that the DUP got rid of Ian Paisley. And so did the church, the Free Presbyterian Church, which he founded. And at every turn of our recent history, the DUP, the Ulster Unions before them, the other factions, have been challenged to come into the modern world. And some find it 
difficult and others find it impossible to do so. And you know, the modern world, modern Ireland cannot wait forever on them. I remember in the days of black and white television watching in December the 9th, 1968, the Stormont UUP Prime Minister Terence O'Neill on television making a desperate appeal. Unionism was in turmoil as it tried to come to terms with the demand for civil rights. And in his Ulster stands at the crossroads address, O'Neill warned that Ulster divided against itself could not hope to stand. I made it clear that a Northern Ireland, based on the interest of any one section, rather than on the interests of all, could have no long-term future. And they got rid of him. Just as I've said, 50 years later, they get rid of his great detractor, Ian Paisley, and just as they've just got rid of Arlene Foster. And be mindful that they will also seek to get rid of whoever the new leader is, if he, and it has to be a he, tries to move into the modern world. The DUP promised that they did not deliver on the new decade, new approach agreement, including and especially Act Nagilga. And, you know, people, I suppose, because of the pandemic and the way there has been a huge effort made to tackle this unprecedented crisis, that, that did divert attention from those commitments, but they haven't gone away. Those who signed up to Act Nagilga at the time, they include Edmund Putz, they include Geoffrey Donaldson, they include those who voted against or at least signed a letter for Arlene Foster to resign. So the quandary for them is obvious. Will they embrace the new dispensation and manage the changes with the rest of us? Or will they repeat the folly of recent years, including support for Brexit, the rejection of women's rights, of equality, the rights of LGBTQ citizens, the withdrawal from North-South bodies, a refusal to fully embrace power sharing. Will they, will they do all of that again? Or will they keep to their commitments? So let's give the DUP space to select its own leader. Let's face up to whoever and whatever emerges with good heart and a generous spirit. Because one thing is certain, the process of positive change must continue, including the possibility and the potential for constitutional change as set out in the Good Friday Agreement. I mind it and I make no apologies for it to return again to the plight of the Palestinian people living under the yoke of Israeli apartheid laws and policies. And last week, the Human Rights Watch published a 224-page report on the policies and actions of the Israeli state. And it found the Israeli state guilty and indicted them for the crime of apartheid and persecution. And that can be found, if you wish to read it yourself, in the document, The Threshold Crossed, 
and it's hitch t t p s forward slash forward slash www dot hrw dot org forward slash report twenty twenty one. So, you know, what what are we to say about this? It's just absolutely obscene that this goes on. But at least this is a positive response from a respected international body. And it has recommended that the Israeli government dismantle all forms of systematic domination and oppression that privilege Jewish Israelis and systematically repress Palestinians. It has recommended that Israeli authorities should cease building settlements and dismantle existing ones and provide Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza with full respect of their human rights. It is recommended that the finding of crimes against humanity should prompt the international community to reevaluate its approach to Israel and Palestine. It is recommended that the Israeli government should dismantle all forms of systematic domination and repression and to end the prosecution of Palestinians. So, all of that is as I've said, to the good. But it's also a huge indictment of the international community and its failure to defend the rights of the Palestinians. And the Human Rights Watch report is damning in this regard. It says, For too long, the international community explained the way and turned a blind eye to the increasing transparent reality on the ground. Every day a person is born in Gaza into an open-air prison, into the West Bank without civil rights, in Israel with an inferior status by law, and in neighbouring countries effectively condemned the lifelong refugee status like their parents and grandparents before them, simply because they are Palestinian. A future rooted in freedom, equality and dignity for all people living in Israel and the Palestinian territories, will remain elusive so long as the Israeli government's abusive practices continue. I couldn't put it better. So let's have a, a, a song of resistance and rebellion and hope to end this little podcast. Go, Ji Shibsha Slan, Venerian Ta Lipsha, Gorama Ogut Makarja.